Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Rosalind Rosenberg, Professor of History Emerita at Bernard College. Her book, Jane Crow, The Life of Polly Murray, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Rosenberg has given us a multi-layered and engaged biography of Polly Murray, an activist lawyer and Episcopal priest whose life intersected with the most significant civil and human rights issues of the 20th century. As a mixed-race woman who felt that her identity was odds with her body before transsexual had become part of the popular consciousness, Murray's life provides insight into a lived intersectionality of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Beginning with her Southern upbringing, we follow Murray through multiple educational, vocational, and identity challenges she suffered. In a journey through a dislocated life, she made contributions to multiple movements and institutions, working with many key social leaders such as Thurgood Marshall, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Betty Friedan. Appearing as a one-woman social movement with a deep religious faith, she pursued justice not for herself alone, but also for others. Rosenberg has provided sympathetic insight into the personal costs that Murray incurred on the road to a more equitable society. Here is my conversation with Rosalind Rosenberg. Now let me introduce you to the author, Rosalind Rosenberg. Hello, Rosalind. Hello, Lillian. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book was illuminating many ways, and I would describe Murray after reading your book as a one-person social movement. I think that's true. Before we get into the book, though, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Jane Crow. I am an American historian. I have been teaching and writing about women's gender and legal history for the past 40 years, and I'm currently Professor Emerita of American History at Barnard College, Columbia University in New York City. I first became interested in Polly Murray. Uh, when I came to know Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the 1970s. Now, Justice Ginsburg was then the first tenured female professor at Columbia Law School, and she was well-known even at that time for leading a uh, series of cases to the Supreme Court in which she successfully fought for greater gender equality. As a historian, I was curious to know what had inspired Ginsburg to make such an unusual argument, because uh, Ginsburg claimed that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was initially passed after the Civil War to protect the rights of African Americans, was also also protected the rights of women. And I wondered where this idea came from. And she told me it came from Polly Murray. Uh, Polly Murray became an obsession of mine, and I included her in a book I was writing on the history of women in the 20th century. But it was only after Murray's death when, in 1985, her papers went to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard uh, and became open to researchers in the 1990s. And when I started going through the papers, uh, I realized that this was an, an extraordinary archive. We don't have very much in the way of documentary evidence for most uh, black women in history, but Polly Murray left more than 135 boxes of journals and di- diaries, correspondence, 
unpublished writings, a real treasure trove. Uh, and I decided then that I wanted to write a biography of her. Now, this uh, book is a real different from things you've done before, this biography. Yes, it and, is. And why did it take so long for a historical biography of Polly Murray to be written? Murray published a memoir. In fact, she published two memoirs in her uh, uh She published a history of her maternal grandparents uh, in the 1950s, uh, and that told about her, her life as a child. And then she uh, wrote a memoir that was published a couple of years after her death uh, about her, her whole life. So there didn't seem to be much point in writing a biography of someone who had already documented her own life. But when her papers were opened, it became evident that there were things that she had shied away from in her memoir, as is often true in memoirs. The most important thing that she shied away from was what we would now call her lifelong struggle with gender identity. Uh, And as her papers made clear, this was a struggle that affected her not only personally, but her public work as well, especially her, her legal and theological writings. Now, the thing about Polly Murray, I've noticed this. I saw her name in so many different things. Her name would just be, she would just be mentioned. It's almost like there was a ghost of Polly Murray. But nobody's ever seemed to really explain why she was important. She was just kind of there in a long list of other women. And But you're saying that there was a real need to tell her story more fully. Why? Well, first of all, I, th- I think that's a, a, an important observation that she seemed to be there in the background because I think that is uh, true of, of Murray. She was someone who uh, acted far ahead of her time in terms of the uh, campaigns for human rights she was involved in, uh, but she also operated behind the scenes. And I think that one of the reasons that she operated behind the scenes was that uh, she was so preoccupied with personal matters, particularly issues of gender identity, uh, that it was difficult for her to be out front in, in much of the activism uh, of, her, of her time, except when she was doing it, before anyone else was doing it. Um, I'm sorry, I've lost track of your question. Well, I was I was asking, you know, why is it that she just appears like a ghost and she's always sort of in the background or mentioned in books, but never. I thought, who is this Polly Murray? Because she always keeps, you know, coming up. And when I started looking into her history of, of Polly Murray, I couldn't find a whole lot. Well, your book was the first book that I read that seemed to be really, I mean, it's about her. And it is. It is about her. And it totally um, clarified everything. It clarified a lot for me. Uh, just reading your book, goes, oh, that's why. You know, that's why she's in this. She was mentioned here. She was mentioned there. But let, we can go on with the next question, which is where does she fall among all the civil rights leaders? Because we've heard of so many, you know, women's rights and African American rights, and and where does she fall in that uh, pantheon of civil rights leaders? She was someone who always considered herself to be in between. She was in between in terms of her race. She was in between in terms of her gender. Uh, she uh, was in, in between in terms of her timing, his, her historical timing. I think that's one reason why it's difficult to to find her um, unless one goes through her, her papers. Uh, so that I think it's very important to know that Polly Murray was orphaned at three and raised by her grandparents and aunts in Durham, North Carolina. Her grandfather was born into a mixed race, free family in Pennsylvania, uh, and grew up as an abolitionist who had known all the abolitionist leaders of his time, including Susan B. Anthony, who fought in the Civil War and who came to North Carolina after the Civil War to teach the newly freed slaves. Uh, so Pauling grew up with this grandfather knowing that she was part of a long civil rights movement. So even though the 
it's often been said that the civil rights movement in life for uh, African-Americans in the South reached a nadir in the early 20th century. Polly Murray knew as a child that there was this heritage of civil rights and high aspirations for education. Uh, and that carried on in her life, even in the years when blacks were most beleaguered. Uh, so it's not surprising because of that heritage that she grew up with uh, high educational aspirations and a determination to to carry on the civil rights tradition at a time when most whites didn't even know that there was a civil rights movement at all. Uh, so it it was part of part of her being ahead of her time uh, was because of the way in which she was raised in that household of of African Americans who were part of a civil rights movement that was not a, not recognized by whites mostly. Now part of her in betweenness was the fact that she was uh, racially mixed and she was very light. And I yes, think she was. wasn't there a sister or someone in her family could actually pass for white. Yes, um, Polly's Murray, um, Polly Murray's uh, family was mixed in all sorts of ways, uh, and in the family where she grew up, in the household where she grew up, she was the darkest member. Uh, and although her family always encouraged her and loved her very much, uh, her grandmother, who who could certainly have passed for for white, uh, was always very worried about Polly and would tell her, don't go out in the sun, uh, you know, don't suck on your lips, uh, comb your hair, because her grandmother was worried about uh, Polly's appearing to be too black and, and therefore being subject to more discrimination as a consequence of that. So Polly Murray grew up feeling very conscious of color, particularly when she started going to school, and the other children were much darker than she was, and they taunted her for being too light, they called her a bastard. They called her a Jew baby. Um, they, they, they taunted her because she, uh, she was too white. So that, that, that meant that color was very much at the forefront of, of Polly Murray's thinking. Uh, and, uh, something for which she saw no clear boundaries. And, and that became very important in her, her thought. Now, when you approached, uh, Polly Murray, when you were started uh, doing the work on Murray, uh, did your, the way you approached her changed over time as you wrote the book? And where did you find yourself at the end of the book? Because I have all these preconceived notions about Polly Murray. And then when I read your book, as I went through it, you know, my thinking was being changed. I'd like to know that journey uh, of yours, of getting to know her and how you changed your perspective on her. Did you come into it with some sort of pre preconceived notion of who she was or what you were going to find, and were you surprised, and then you had to change your stance? Yes, yes. Uh, this is the upside of taking a very long time on a project. Your thinking can evolve over time. Uh, I, When I first became interested in Polly Murray. I became interested in her as a legal historian. I wanted to understand uh, the 14th Amendment and how the 14th Amendment had changed over time. In fact, that was originally the book that I planned to write, A History of the 14th Amendment. But as I got into uh, her papers, uh, I, I realized that the 14th Amendment was, came, her thinking in the 14th Amendment came after a period of growing up and even um, a, a decade or two into her adulthood. Uh, so it, it was, it was a legal history that then became a personal history that, that then focused on the issue of marginality and in-betweenness. If I have an argument in the book, it, it is, um, that Pauline Murray bears out something that the German social theorist uh, Georg Simmel said a century ago, and that is that the outsiders in society, um, people who are considered marginal, often have the most original insights into the society in which they live. They can see what others cannot when others do not. And, and I think that Murray's life very much bears out Simmel's uh, theory. Uh, and this was not something that had occurred to me or that I was even thinking about when I first started 
working on her, but became more and more powerful to me uh, as I worked my way through her papers. Well, what's interesting is, as I, as I read the book, I thought lots of people can identify with some aspect of her life. She had so many multifarious, multifarious experiences, you know, gender and race and sexuality and and, and gender. And it, she had so many experiences. It seems like just about everybody can relate to some aspect of her life. And I think that's that's true. You know, her. Her grandfather was very worried about his four daughters and how they were going to support themselves uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century as black women. So he always told them they had to have at least two jobs. Um, and they all did. They were all um, uh, teachers, seamstresses, um, and could support themselves in a variety of ways. So Polly Murray ends up being a, uh, a labor organizer, a civil rights worker, uh, a, a lawyer, a poet, uh, a professor, and ultimately the first black female Episcopal priest. I mean, this is someone who, as one of, one of my, my students said to me, Oh, Professor Rosenberg, Polly Murray makes me feel so much better. I've had three jobs <laughs> and she had so many more. She had multiple so think, careers. She had multiple. She had multiple- she had multiple careers, and since this is increasingly the experience of young people today, I think that she may speak to, to them on, on those grants alone. Now, she started off with the whole idea of uh, she's encountering race prejudice, and then she's dealing with race and civil rights and the bus, the, right, the public transportation issue, and uh, she really feels, you know, she gets excluded from things because of her race. And then after she deals with that for a while, she's all of a sudden she runs into this gender thing. And so she coins this idea of Jane Crow, which is the title of your book. So can you talk a little bit about Jane Crow and what was her approach to civil rights when she's when she sees its race and its gender? And it's not one or the other. It's both. And she's in both categories. Yes. Yes. Gender had been a private struggle for Murray from early childhood. Uh, she never wanted to wear dresses. She wanted to wear only boys' clothes. And her family allowed her to do that, uh, except at church. She had to wear a dress at church. But otherwise, she could dress as a boy. And they called her their boy girl. But gender didn't become an intellectual problem for her until she reached Howard Law School, which was an historically black law school, the principal training ground for civil rights lawyers uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And she arrived there in 1941. And the first day she was there, uh, she was uh, teased uh, for being a woman. She was the only woman in her class. And as so often happened with women at law school in that era when only 1% of all lawyers were women, uh, they were uh, criticized for being at law school because they were taking up the seat of a man who had to support a family. Uh, and Murray was tormented uh, throughout her time at Howard Law School for being, uh, for being female. Uh, and this was particularly galling to her because she, in her view, she only appeared to be female. Uh, nonetheless, she was, uh, she was, uh, criticized, uh, for, for being there. And she reacted to that criticism by working hard and becoming, uh, the, uh, the best student in her class. She graduated valedictorian from Howard. And traditionally, valedictorians from Howard went on to Harvard Law School for, uh, graduate training, uh, to prepare them to be professors usually to go back to teach at Howard Law School. There was such discrimination. Blacks weren't hired in uh, in white law schools. So she applied, and she was turned down. She was turned down because of her gender. She was livid. Uh, and this becomes uh, the, the, base, the basis for her thinking about Jane Crow, uh, that discrimination... On the basis of gender, she comes to think is the same thing as discrimination on the basis of race, that they both involve using arbitrary categories, race or gender, uh, categories without clear boundaries uh, in order to subjugate people um, unfairly. 
And it is that idea that um, becomes the basis for her criticism of the civil rights litigation of her day. Her friend Thurgood Marshall, also a Howard graduate, was arguing before the Supreme Court uh, that blacks were, uh, were treated unfairly because they were sent to segregated schools that were underfunded. And this uh, was based on a Supreme Court decision going back to the 1890s called Plessy versus Ferguson, which held that it was all right for blacks to be segregated as long as the institutions to which they were consigned uh, were equal to those of whites. And Thurgood Marshall, case after case, would argue these institutions are not equal. You have to give them more funding. And Polly Murray argued with Thurgood Marshall that uh, he should stop trying to make black institutions white and argue that separation per se violated the 14th Amendment. And Thurgood Marshall uh, began to do that in 1954. He won uh, Brown versus Board of Education on the grounds that Murray urged him to argue. So she uh, was she was an integrationist. She was an integrationist. Okay. And there was the other thing you said um, that there were unclear boundaries. You use that term in, in, in race. In, I think people could say yes. There's unclear boundaries between black and white. There's people of you know a spectrum of of color. But it would have been hard for her at that time to argue that there was an unclear boundary between male and female, men and women. But that's what she was also arguing. She was arguing, and she didn't get uh, very far with that. Right, because she, uh, so, she had to keep it under wraps lest she be found out, right? Exactly, exactly. She, she never uh, told anyone apart from a few close friends and family members about her gender struggles. She never identified as transgender. Uh, she never identified as a lesbian. Um, but that sense of herself as being in between in terms of gender was something that was constantly on her mind and made her argue that uh, women should uh, be protected by the Equal Protection Clause uh, equally with uh, African Americans. And she finally persuaded Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in 1971 to use her theory in her first successful argument before the Supreme Court. Uh, a case out of Idaho called Reed v. Reed, uh, in which the state of Idaho had privileged males over females as ex- executors of the states. And, and Ginsburg said, there's, uh, there, there's no reasonable basis for, for doing this. There's, there's uh, no evidence that men serve more effectively as executors as women. Uh, I wanted to um, ask you about uh, the ERA here because she definitely, in her own thinking, thought that uh, the gender binary was just a con- social construction, that that, that yes. wasn't right. And so and there were people who were against the ERA who were arguing exactly that same thing, that ERA was going to blur or erase the difference between men and women. Okay? Yes. And she yes. would have said yes, and that's a good thing. Right. And they said, no, that's a bad thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting how her thinking and some of the conservative thinking sort of sort kind of go together. Uh, and, and Well, um, but here's the difference. Um, well, yeah, there is a difference, but it's she thinks that's a good thing. <laughs> she thinks it's a good thing. Uh, it, and and it's it reflects reality. Uh, conservatives thought it was a bad thing and that it flew in the face of biological reality and theological, uh, belief. Right. And she also, in terms of, in terms of the, what she believed about her own body, she was, she spent many, many years, I mean, her whole life trying to figure out if there was something by, first, a biological basis for the fact that she would felt like a man. Yes. But she looked like a woman. So she tried to get doctors to do it. They did examinations to try to figure out if there were, you know, uh, differences in her bi- biology. And she com- always comes up, oh, you're just a perfectly normal female, which she, it was yes. hard for her to expect. She thought that they were missing something. There was something that they weren't finding. Yes, that's right. I think it may help to uh, know that 
Murray grew up in a time when the term transgender didn't even exist, and certainly there was no social movement to support her in this thinking. But there was a tradition of writing among sexologists, the most prominent being Havelock Ellis, the British sexologist. And Ellis, along with others, argued that there is no male or female, there's male and female, that sex exists along a continuum and everyone is partly male, partly female. Uh, Ellis also hypothesized that there were some few people who could be called uh, pseudo-hermaphrodites. And a pseudo-hermaphrodite was someone who appeared on the outside to be a member of one gender, but had um, organs of the other gender internally. And Murray latched onto this. She was convinced she was a pseudo-hermaphrodite. And so she would go to doctors and ask them to give her testosterone so that her outer body would conform more closely with her inner sense of herself. She once had an operation for an, um, uh, an append- appendectomy and asked the surgeon, please, while you're in there, look around for undescended testes. And the surgeon looked, I mean, he thought it was ridiculous, but he looked, he didn't find anything. Um, and Murray finally had to accept the fact that uh, there, the doctors couldn't find anything internally in terms of organs. But she ultimately came to the belief that maybe her sex organs did not conform to her idea of herself as male, but that her mind did. And particularly when she became a priest, the notion of of her, her self, especially her mental self and her soul being male, uh, was an important part of what she was doing theologically. And she goes on to, um, to become the first uh, black female priest in 1977. And in writings and sermons that she, she gave, she would often speak of her life's being a spiritual quest, uh, which had led to her finding a Christ in which there was no male or female, there was no black or white, um, that uh, human- humanity was humanity and, and, and not, uh, not broken down by gender. Now, now, her book, she's moving from social movement to social movement. She's involved in just about everything, labor and women and African Americans. And there's other, she's involved in all kinds of things that come up. And she's also yes. moving through lots and lots of jobs and positions and institutions. She doesn't seem to ever be really located any one place. She just is moving from one thing to another. And uh, so I call her sort of, she's like dislocated, in, which actually her outward experience seems to feel like her inward experience of being dislocated, it, not here, not there, just kind of, and I got that sense from reading the book, you know, that she was just, I'm thinking, wow, she's had so many jobs. She's just moving from one thing to another. And at the same time with that, she's, she's still, she's still accomplishing. She's, yes. and, and then she's having educational, financial, personal identity issues, health issues, friendship issues. It was just like so much. I'm like, this woman is <laughs> caring a lot. And I, She's a very sympathetic character the way you present her, okay? It's like, wow. Uh, and she just kept going. She did. I, I think that there are a couple of ways of understanding that tumult. Um, one is that she was an African-American female at a time of very severe discrimination against both African-Americans and females. And at a time when uh, there was a tremendous backlash, uh, certainly starting in the, the, the late 1930s, against anyone involved in the labor movement, as she was as a, as a young person, anyone with radical ideas. And she, she was a member of the Communist Party opposition in the 1930s. So you, you can't get much more radical than that. I mean, someone who's, who, who thinks that the Communist Party can't get it straight. <laughs> so, um, so the, co- the combination of her radicalism, her African American background and her gender, uh, made, made her vulnerable to discrimination at every turn. 
So one of the reasons that she had so many jobs was that she lost so many jobs. Uh, she had a job uh, as as a waitress, lost it because the uh, of the of the depression. Uh, she uh, had. Uh, an opportunity to have a wonderful research job at Cornell University working on, on um, the laws of Liberia. She didn't get it because uh, her in her youth she had been the mem- member of so many liberal and even radical organizations. Um, she tried to get a work as a lawyer, uh, and she had difficulty because there was so much discrimination against white female lawyers. Forget about black female lawyers. Uh, she didn't have any connections. Um, although, actually, one one of the letters that uh, most touched me was that when uh, she still held out hope that she would get the research job at Cornell in 1952, um, she was told it would help a lot if you had a letter from a more conservative person than the people who are recommending you. And she said, a black woman in my situation is not in a position to have a letter from a conservative person unless she's a maid. (laughs) 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 She'd been a maid for one day in her life, and um, that that was that. So she's... there, there's this, there are all of these ways in which she's, she's in tumult and losing jobs and taking different jobs because she's discriminated in so many different ways. But there's also the tumult that you mentioned of her internal struggle. She was brought up to believe that she was a child of destiny, part of the civil rights movement that dated back to the abolitionists. And when she, she ended up at one point in the 1950s, uh, working for a very distinguished liberal law firm in New York City and and making a nice salary. Uh, But it it was not fulfilling. She she wanted, she knew she was destined more than being a legal cog in the American uh, wheel of of law. So she quits her job and she goes off to be a professor at the newly formed uh, law school in Ghana, which is, and Ghana has just become an independent country. Now, the uh, thing about you're talking, she's a radical intellectual. She's associated with these radical groups. She also has this internal thing going on that's just constantly causing all kinds of havoc in her life. But there's also the the issue of her demeanor, her appearance, uh, and how people responded just to that before she even opened her mouth, before she even said anything uh, radical at all. Uh, her demeanor was was more masculine, yes. and 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 she, she wasn't ladylike, and people tried to make her ladylike and show her how to present herself in a more feminine way. That sometimes she would tr- she would try to go along in order to get along. Um, <laughs> what kind of personality was she? It seems like she was a little abrasive, or kind of like uh, put people off. For a woman, particularly for a woman, she was abrasive. She, for her t- for her time, yeah, yes, yeah, and, and of course, a, a, abrasive becomes a, a, a term of, right. of denigration. I right. mean, any any woman who speaks her mind, particularly in Polly Murray's lifetime, is abrasive. And she felt that especially at law school, uh, because in her in her sense of herself, she was one of the guys. But they didn't see her as one of the guys. Uh, so she she would um, uh, speak up and argue uh, innovative ideas, and they would laugh at her. Uh, and it it just made her crazy <laughs> that uh, they could argue something and be aggressive. But if she if she uh, advanced an idea uh, in a, a, a firm, confident tone of voice, they would laugh at her because she wasn't acting. Like a like a woman, it it it, it was a very. As someone said, said, who knew her said, "Oh, you have a very hard life," <laughs> and she did. She had a very hard life. I mean, she she had challenges on every every quarter, every single area of her life. There wasn't one area that she didn't have a challenge. It's, I think that's right. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, eventually, part of this thing, she goes to Africa. You mentioned it before. And she had, she went, she didn't want to go to Africa. Then she decided she wanted to go to Africa. She goes to Africa. She thinks 
what, what she, she thinks about what she's going to accomplish there. And then it really changes, it totally changes how she perceives Africa, what she thought she could do there, what she thought she had in common with Africans. Can you talk about that? What did she learn? Well, it, it's, in, it's important to know that, that Polly Murray, when she went to Africa in 1960, um, 61, uh, was still somewhat embarrassed by her uh, slave ancestors. She was em- em- embarrassed. She was very proud of her grandfather, who had been born free and had fought in the Civil War uh, and was an educator. Um, but she she felt embarrassed that some others of her ancestors had been slaves. Uh, but she also thought that that was something that she shouldn't be embarrassed by. And she went in, to Africa in part to find the the African roots that she had had not really wanted to identify with up until that time. But she came at a time when when Ghana was uh, just having become independent of Great Britain, uh, was going in a direction of um, autocracy. Nkrumah, who was the um, the president of, of the country was arresting anyone who dissented from him. Uh, and it became clear that she was going to be arrested if she stayed. Uh, and so she, she, she left, um, very saddened, um, disillusioned, um, by what, what she had experienced there because she, she thought that she was going to be finding a place where, uh, blacks could be free and control their own lives. But it turned out not to be the case. Right. So I want to move on to something else. It has to do with uh, her, her friendships, her life partnerships. She, for a person who moved around a lot and had a lot of different places to be, uh, she had some pretty heavy 2D connections and friendships. Eleanor yes. Roosevelt, Carolyn Ware, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, then can you talk to about those people and then her uh, relationship with Betty Friedan and the founding of Now. I mean, she was connected to a lot of women who were very much on the forefront of, of civil rights and women's rights. She was. And not just not just like that she just knew them. They they were willing to step, step up for her. Yes. I I think that it mattered a lot that her her grandfather had told her when she was a young child that he had he had sat on the same stage with Susan B. Anthony. I, I think it mattered that her grandmother, who had been uh, the product of the rape of a mixed race slave uh, by uh, uh, the son of the the planter, the white planter, um, that that grandmother. Uh, didn't spend any time talking about the the rape. She spent all of her time talking about the fact that her ancestors and therefore Polly's ancestors were important people, lawyers, trustees of the University of North Carolina, people who really mattered. So Polly, from a very early age, was told that whether uh, uh, the, the people she was dealing with were black or whether they were white, um, that, uh, that they, they, they were, they were people that she had every right to form a friendship with. Uh, and so she, she had, uh, important relationships with women in the, uh, labor movement, black and white, and important relationships with, uh, uh, Caroline Ware, who was one of the most distinguished, not the most distinguished social historian of her era, who taught at Howard and became a close personal friend. Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, a, a, a friend until um, uh, Roosevelt's death in 1962. In fact, it was Eleanor Roosevelt who appointed Polly Murray to John F. Kennedy's Commission on the Status of Women, which gave Murray the platform to advance her ideas that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment could be used to win equal rights for women. So Polly had a tremendous confidence about herself at the same time that she experienced all of this inner racial and gender turmoil. It was it was an unusual package, uh, but it was it was that confidence uh, that I think allowed her to establish relationships with uh, 
people across a broad spectrum you know, of, of economic well-being and um, racial identity. Now she she joined Betty Friedan and the founding of Now, but then she she break she doesn't stay with Now very very long at all. She breaks away. She uh, does, and, she, and she, she was motivated because she thought it was going to be the women's version of the NAACP. That's right. And yep. uh, then she's disillusioned by where Now is going. Can you talk about that conflict? Yes, she. Um, she met for Dan uh, first uh, after giving a, a, a speech in Washington arguing that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was falling down on the job by not protecting working women. Uh, there's a story in the Times. Betty Friedan reads the story, contacts Murray, and that begins their friendship. And Murray says, what women need in this country is an NAACP. And so they work together found um, what Betty Friedan calls the National Organization for Women now. Uh, and Betty Friedan and Pauline Murray together write the original statement of purpose of, of now, which has a very strong civil rights feel to it, if you go back and read it. Uh, and things go along well for a year until the second uh, convention of now, 1967. And at that, at that point, um, Betty Friedan and, and others begin pushing for the now to embrace uh, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, and M- Murray is um, embittered both by the way that it's done. They just railroad this through. Uh, and, and also upset about the fact that she had thought that now would not only work for equal rights for women in terms of legal um, in terms of law, but also equality in terms of economic well-being. And now is very quickly, in her eyes, becoming an organization for the advancement of white professional women, forgetting poor women and African Americans more broadly in the process. And although she was then up for election to the national board of now, uh, she took herself out of the running. She said that she did. She she could not serve as a board member of an organization uh, that was conceiving of its goals so narrowly. Now, how did she um, how did she operate within the uh, President Kennedy's Commission on Women, uh, how, Advancement of Women? How how, did, how well did she do there? What how was her experience of that? She was appointed to the subcommittee to deal with um, the the question of of legal equality for women. Uh, it's important to know that the women's movement had been deeply divided for four decades, going back to the 1920s, uh, over what the next step should be for women after winning suffrage in 1920. And uh, most, uh, most women in the women's movement at that point uh, were what sometimes referred to as social reformers. They uh, they were mostly Democrats. Uh, they were mostly uh, committed to labor law and labor protection, and over the decades fought hard for laws that protected women workers. There was a smaller number of of uh, women's rights leaders led by Alice Paul, who said the next step has to be in. Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, and pe- people like Eleanor Roosevelt and Florence Kelly were leery of an Equal Rights Amendment because they were afraid that if men and women were treated the same, that the protective laws for women would be abolished. And so it, Murray ultimately comes to um, endorse the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, but for a very long time she didn't because she identified more strongly with the labor movement in the the fears that women workers would be harmed if an ERA were passed. Right. Okay. Um, let's talk about, we haven't talked much about here what, what men were influential in her life, the men that have really actually helped her. Along the way, there were, there were men who helped her try to move her forward, as many men that, that also tried to hold, hold her back. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the key men in her life? Besides her grandfather. Well, her her grandfather first and and foremost. Um, 
But after that, um, a black journalist by the name of Ted Poston was a, a lifelong uh, supporter. Uh, pa- Polly, uh, one of her careers was journalist, uh, and, and Poston encouraged her in, in that. Um, she was a friend of James Farmer and Bayard Rustin, um, although they they often came nearly to blows over the the issue of of women's place in the um, in the civil rights movement, particularly in the, the 1963 March on Washington, um, Murray was furious with A. Philip Randolph, who was a longtime mentor, and Bayard Rustin, who organized the march, for not giving women uh, a role in the in the march. Uh, so it was those were men who encouraged her, but who fell far uh, short of what she thought that they should be doing for civil rights. One of the most important men in her life was um, Lloyd Garrison, who was the great great grandson of William Lloyd Garrison, the famous 19th century radical abolitionist, who was alone among abolitionists of his time, arguing that there had to be freedom not only for uh, uh, slaves, but also for all women. Lloyd Garrison was a lawyer whom she came to know because he was a trustee at Howard Law School. And he tried for years to get her a legal job and finally got her the job uh, with uh, Paul, Paul Weiss in New York. Uh, where she was for several years until she left out of boredom <laughs> in order to go to law. It, 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 yeah, it seemed, either she got fired, she got bored, right. <laughs> or she got bored because she was a very bright person and she just had to keep moving. Yes. Um, let me let's talk about her her, her friendships and and then there's a, the life partnership that she formed with Irene Barlow. You talk about Irene Barlow and. Um, yeah, what was the nature of that relationship? How they came to know each other, and were you surprised when you found her in the archives? Well, I I knew about the relationship because Murray had talked about it obliquely in her memoir um, as her closest friend, but it it was was clear uh, in in the papers that she was more than a friend. Uh, they referred to each other as partner. Um, and Garrison was actually instrumental in in their meeting because Garrison was the managing partner at Paul Weiss, and he realized pretty quickly in the early 1950s that he he needed help as managing partner, and so he hired Irene Barlow, and he hired her because um, she was committed to uh, herself to hiring a diverse. Uh, staff at Paul Weiss, uh, and she was quite uh, she was quite aggressive uh, about it. Even she would always take letters from uh, uh, possible uh, staff staff members, even if she didn't have a job, and and held them so that she she would be able to call them when when an uh, opening came. So she she had uh, Asian. Um, secretaries, African-American secretaries, uh, people from all religions at a time when religion really mattered. Sectarian differences made a big difference. Uh, And so it was Irene Barlow who managed the staff when Polly Murray went to work at Paul Weiss um, in 1956. Uh, And she's and Murray had a very hard time in the beginning. She uh, she she was working in corporate law and she didn't really have any experience in corporate law. And uh, Irene Barlow helped her a lot. And they had a a shared faith. They were both raised as Episcopalians and um, they uh, they they went to church um, uh, often several times during the week and and in the weekend. They never lived together, uh, and th- this was something that was interesting about both of them. Um, Irene uh, had an elderly mother who lived in a very small apartment, walk-up apartment with her. Um, Paul, Polly Murray, and she wasn't going to abandon her her mother. Um, Polly Murray um, had. Since after her aunts died, uh, she lived in on her own in a small apartment. Uh, so they didn't have what we might think of as a uh, a, a marriage in the conventional sense. Um, but one one measure of how important Bala was to 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 Murray uh, was that in the years that they were together, 
if not actually living in the same place. Um, polymery was the most productive in the calmest um, and got got the most done. Uh, and when Mar- um, Barlow died in 1973 of breast cancer, Murray was absolutely devastated. Uh, and to the horror of her friends and colleagues, she left a tenured position at Brandeis University, which she had fought very hard to get and had held for only two years. And she entered General Theological Seminary in New York to become an Episcopal priest at a time when the Episcopal Church would not allow women to be priests. I mean, this was typical of Polly Murray. (laughs) Didn't bother her that the law was against it, that Episcopal rulings were against it. She was convinced uh, that uh, history was on her side. And indeed, shortly after her graduation, uh, uh, the church came around and and, uh, agreed that women could be ordained as priests. And she was one of the first women and the first black woman to do so. Now, at the end of her life, she'd been fighting all her life race and gender discrimination. And then at the end of her life, she's she's encountering age discrimination. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's like, oh, my, she's had everything happen to her, you know, because she's trying to go into the priesthood in her 60s. Is this not? That's right. Yeah, That's right. right. And That's right. She, she never does get a a, a permanent position, a, yeah, a church. She she just is an itinerant, I feeling, you know, filling in for others. She's a supply priest. Right. 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 <laughs> which which means that she, you know she does the marriages or the baptisms or gives the the sermons when the um, the the priest is on vacation or indisposed for some reason. She. Um, and she she has these moments in which she's financially secure. There's that moment when she's at Paul Weiss, the law firm. There is that moment when she's at Brandeis, um, furious when she discovers that she's being paid less than than other uh, pr- professors her age. Uh, but apart from that, she's she, she lives a life of of poverty. So in in that sense when she when she is an impoverished priest, it's something that she knows how to do. She's done it all of her life. Um, and she was never a materialistic person. Uh, yeah, she was she was broke most of the time. She I mean, was broke like, most of the time. And it was like badly broke. I mean, you know, not just couldn't make the rent or serious broke. She she was she was so broke uh, that she allowed an in abdominal infection to fester for two years before she had the health insurance that allowed her to have an operation. Uh, she almost died because she couldn't afford to have medical care. Um, so she, uh, yes, she was she was poor, and she kept meticulous notes on her budget, so it's possible to um, to detail just how broke she was. Now she became an Episcopal priest at the very end of her life, sort of a capstone to everything she's done because she's been acting as a priest all her life in, in terms of mediating right. for people. Uh, yes, mediating for other people, and I'm just kind of wondering uh, throughout the the. It was kind of surprising at the end. I knew this because I knew a little bit about Polly Murray, so I know she became an Episcopal priest. But throughout her life, you don't really talk much about how her faith intersected with her politics. Yes. And so I like a little fill-in on that because it seems like all of a sudden she's becoming a priest. I know she was going to church once in a while, but um, did she have a strong sense of, uh, that what she was doing in all these battles that she was taking on, that there was some sort of godly calling or some, you know, divine justice that she was trying to execute. She she was raised in a religious household. Her uh, one of her aunts married an Episcopal priest, and the, the priest took her on his rounds. Uh, so she she grew up in the church. Uh, she was um, told by the African-American bishop in North Carolina on his deathbed that he believed she was a child of destiny, and she took this dealing with her her whole life. But when she 
And she moved to New York after high school because she would not continue to submit to Jim Crow education. And in New York, uh, particularly in the 1930s when she was involved in the labor movement, uh, she lost her faith, as young people often do. Uh, and then it was after, uh, after that, really sometime in the 50s, she, she began to go to church again and, and she meets Barlow and, and with, with Barlow, religion becomes, uh, a much more central, uh, uh, part of her, of her life. But she doesn't quite, she doesn't make the connection in her papers about that. It, it's, it's sort of part of who she is and what she does every day, but she doesn't, she doesn't write about that. Until she becomes a priest, and then she and then she does. Now, what is her? And I didn't ask you this question. I should have asked earlier. What was her a- attitude or her opinion of King and his movement? Well, it depends on when you would ask her. Um, during King's lifetime, um, she really didn't like him. She thought that he was one of the. The, the male religious leaders in civil, civil rights, uh, who were prima donnas and, and, uh, did not respect the role of women in the civil rights movement. But after his assassination, um, she spoke more positively uh, about him as, as someone whose, whose civil rights goals were very much aligned with her. Not, not as completely in terms of gender, but certainly in terms of, of, Avoiding violence. She was, she was very concerned about the risk of violence to the advancement of civil rights. Okay. Um, she identified much more with King, for instance, than with Malcolm X. Okay. Um, what is, you think, I'm going to have a final question here for you. What do you think is, uh, Murray's chief contribution or her legacy? What is it that you want the reader to take away from reading this biography? Because it's it's really a powerful biography for me. I I really really liked what you did with her internal uh, struggles with her sexuality and her gender, because I, I, it was very insightful and I learned a lot because I, oh, I could because I could feel even though I haven't had that experience I could feel what it would feel like to be in those shoes. Well, her, her, her papers make that possible because she is so candid in her papers about what she's feeling. So I could use her own words right. and take her at her word. As for the takeaway for a reader, I would say that there are two things I would hope a reader would take away, particularly a young reader. The first is that civil rights did not begin with Rosa Parks. As wonderful as Rosa Parks was, the civil rights movement goes back a very long way, at least as far as the childhood of of Polly Murray's grandfather. Uh, And that it was a movement that had experienced advances, but also very serious reverses. And particularly in our own day, I think it's important for young people to be aware of that long roller coaster of a history and to admire in Murray the patience and courage and perseverance that she demonstrated her whole life, even in the face of, of very serious setbacks. The second thing I would hope that people would take away from this is the value of society's outsiders. Um, those outsiders, whether they're immigrants or native-born people who are marginalized because of their race or their gender or disability, um, are often able to see things from a different angle of vision and to have insights that others can't have uh, and to uh, allow them to uh, be able to an- anticipate uh, movements that are just beginning to, to form. I would say those two things. Thank you so much, uh, Rosalind Rosenberg, for, for being on the show. Thank you very much, Lillian, for having me. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. You may, you may reach me through my website at LillianBarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>